0: When I was not a teenager, or pardon me, when when I was a teenager, I was not a Christian. When I was a teenager, I was not a Christian, though my parents were. And since I was still under their rules, we would go to church twice on Sunday. Sunday morning and then come home for the afternoon and Sunday evening. And I remember going downstairs most Sunday afternoons and watching NFL football. That's what I did on Sunday afternoons. Most of the time the television was available. But on occasion, I would go downstairs into the basement and I would see my dad watching VHS films of a southern gospel group called The Gathers. I don't know if you ever heard of The Gathers, The Gaither Vocal Band. Um, but it's like southern uh, gospel, southern U.S. gospel music. And uh, from time to time, I'd hear them singing this particular song. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold." gold than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today and i go down and I'd see my dad there watching these VHS films of the Gaither vocal band and I would think to myself something along these lines though not necessarily in these words I'd rather have NFL football <laughs> what about you what about you Would you rather have all that this world affords today than Jesus? Or would you rather have Jesus? The question is a question of value. The question is, which is worth more? The pleasures of this passing world or Jesus? Listen to what Jesus himself says. As I just read from Matthew 13, let me read it again. 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven with a treasure. And tells two stories to illustrate his point. Now we need to understand the meaning of his stories. Uh, In order to understand the meaning of his stories properly, we need to understand two things. The stories themselves and the kingdom of heaven. So let's look first at the stories themselves and then the kingdom of heaven. And then we'll come back to Jesus' main point. The stories themselves are fairly straightforward. Let's look at the first story first. In ancient Israel, you didn't just walk into First Caribbean Bank or First Citizens or RBC or whatever and put your money in. And you didn't, again, go down the street to First Caribbean or First Citizens or whatever to make a withdrawal. They didn't have banks in that sense. So what did you do with your savings? If you hid it in your house, under your mattress or in a coffee can or whatever... Then it could be stolen while you were out working, since people didn't have security systems and deadbolts on the doors and so on and so forth. So what people often did was bury their treasure somewhere on their property, Take a hole, put it in, bury it, and then if someone comes by and is looting the house while they're gone off at work or whatever, they're not going to find the treasure. So it was fairly customary to bury something of great value on their property, maybe keep Keep your petty cash, keep your day-to-day operating stuff, but your really valuable stuff, bury it somewhere on your property. Occasionally, that person would die before they came back for their treasure. They go off to work and something happens and they die and they don't come back. And their treasure stays there in the ground. And then the property would be inherited by someone who didn't know that there was a treasure buried there. And so in the first story that Jesus tells us, a man is working for a homeowner. He's in a field, uh, perhaps he's digging holes for fence posts or plowing or something like that, but in any case, at some point, his shovel or his plow or whatever his tool he's using hits something, and perhaps he thinks it's a rock and bends down to uh, pick it out, up out of the ground, or perhaps he uses his shovel to get some leverage and prize it up out of the ground, but he's surprised to find out that it's not a rock. It's a valuable treasure. Maybe it's a stash of coins. Maybe it's a valuable artifact or something like that. But in any case, this worker realizes that this is worth more than all of his possessions combined. What he has just pulled up out of the ground is worth more than all of his possessions combined. And so he just has to have it. He just has to have this treasure. So he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field so that he will become the owner of the treasure that is contained in the field. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. And Jesus is not making a story about the ethics of finding a buried treasure on someone else's property and seeking to negotiate so that you will inherit the oil reserve underneath or what have you. This is not Jesus' point. Parables are not meant to be dissected like that. Parables are meant to convey one clear, obvious point. And the obvious point here is that this guy finds something in this field that's worth more than everything that he has combined. And he just has to have this field. And so in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has if he can only get this field. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. In the second story, a man is a collector. A dealer in fine pearls. So just like a coin collector uh, is an expert in numismatics, he knows which coins are valuable and which ones are not, so this dealer in fine pearls. He knows a good pearl when he sees it. And one day he comes across a pearl that is worth more than the rest of his pearl collection combined. So never mind the one that he bought just last week. Never mind the many that he obtained on his last sea voyage across the Mediterranean. Never mind all these pearls that he's collected for his whole life. He has to have this one pearl. It's worth more than all of his other pearls combined. He has to have this one pearl. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. So now we understand the stories themselves. Next, what is the kingdom of heaven? Briefly put, it is the mediated rule and reign of God on earth through an appointed human being. Let me explain that. God is God. He's sovereign. Just a couple of verses from the Psalms to verify this point. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. And in case we're not convinced yet, let me remind you of that verse that we studied a number of weeks ago in Ephesians. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. So in a very real sense, God is king and has always been king and shall always be king. And in that sense, the kingdom of God has always been here. This earth has never had someone else as sovereign other than God. But this isn't the type of kingship and the type of kingdom that the Bible means when we read the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Rather, the terms... The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven biblically always refer to the rule and the reign of God made visible and tangible and evident and obvious through an appointed human representative. In the beginning, God appointed Adam to be the king of the earth in that sense. He was always to function under God as a vice-regent, as it were, a deputy, as it were. But Adam was created to be something of a king. On the earth. The word is not there in Genesis, but as we've said several times, just because a word is not there doesn't mean the idea is not there. The Bible teaches uh, that God appointed Adam to be a king of the earth in the beginning, when it teaches us in Genesis 1:28 uh, that as a representative of all human beings, Adam was to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, pardon me, God said to Adam as a representative, of all human beings, that he was to fill the earth and subdue it. This was the job of mankind, and Adam was to exercise leadership in that endeavor. So in the beginning, God commanded Adam to lead the human race in the conquest of the earth. Adam was to make God's rule and reign manifest everywhere. Adam was, in conjunction with Eve, to fill the earth with obedient, worshipful people, executing God's will in all the earth. Where there was darkness, Adam was to bring light. Where there was chaos, Adam was to bring order. Uh, where um, uh, there was potential for further life, Adam was to cultivate that. Adam was to meet needs, uh, organize, rule. Where there was potential, Adam was to cultivate it, and so on. And remember, Adam hadn't sinned yet at that time, Genesis 128. So he wasn't Yet, on a ticking clock towards his death. He would have lived forever and had plenty of time to do this if he had obeyed God. But Adam sinned. Sin is a transgression of God's law or a lack of conformity unto it. We've been dealing with a lot of these things in our evening series through Genesis over the last couple of months. So this is sort of by way of review for most of us. Um, Sin is a transgression of God's law or a lack of conformity unto it. In other words, it is doing what God says we shouldn't do or it's failing to do what God says we should do. In Adam's sin, his kingship failed. And all hope of God's kingdom being established and maintained on earth was temporarily lost. After all, who could do it if Adam couldn't do it? You think, uh, though he... He was, in the beginning, created without a sinful nature. He was neutral, as it were. There was no death and destruction in the world. His circumstances were ideal, and his character was as yet unaffected by sin. And if even in this state he failed, then who after him could possibly establish God's kingdom in the world after the fall? You think Cain and Abel, who are now coming out of his loins, as it were, guilty and corrupt, are going to do a better job than their dad, who was placed in the perfect garden, uh, with a nature that was forced, uh, n- not forced to do either good or evil? Of course not. Uh, the challenge of establishing God's kingdom on earth after sin entered the world became much harder than it was initially for Adam. In fact, that's an understatement. It became impossible. No human being, after Adam's fall into sin, can even properly bring himself under God's rule and reign, let alone anyone else. No human being, no descendant of Adam, inheriting his guilty and corrupt nature, can even properly bring himself under God's rule and reign let alone anyone else, and let alone the whole world. But immediately after Adam's fall into sin, God promised to send someone, one of Eve's descendants, who would crush Satan under his feet, including all that he stood for then and stands for now. One who would defeat sin, Satan, death, and hell. In other words, one who would revive the hope of God's kingdom being established on earth Uh, The whole Old Testament anticipates this coming one. And the biblical books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about his arrival. His name is Jesus. Jesus' task was monumental. Jesus' task was to do what Adam failed to do. To fill this earth with obedient people doing God's will. Remember, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28 And... In order to do that, Jesus must first undo everything bad that Adam's fall into sin had done to the world. So, not only did Jesus have Adam's original task, but Jesus had all the obstacles that Adam introduced to the completion of that task to deal with. So, Jesus' task was monumental. But Jesus, though fully man, born of woman, was not mere man. This Jesus was the Son of Man and the son of god. And Jesus was not god's plan B, another hopeful attempt to establish his kingdom since the first guinea pig, Adam failed. Jesus had been god's plan since the beginning, since before the beginning. Jesus was as uh, Revelation 13:8 tells us, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew that Adam would fail and planned all along to send Jesus to do what Adam would not. Adam was always intended to be simply a movie trailer, as it were, than the feature film. Adam was always intended simply to be a sneak peek of the one who was to come, a man through whom God's kingdom would be established here on earth. So Jesus would not fail. In a sense, he could not fail. Of course, his temptations were real temptations, and he had to withstand them in order to live a sinless life for the redemption of mankind. But he came according to God's decree. He came in the power of God's Spirit, as prophesied by God's Word. And Jesus was himself God's own Son. So all the purpose and all the power of heaven was behind him as he entered this world. To do all that Adam failed to do, and to undo all that Adam did. And in that sense, he could not. In undoing what Adam did, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake, God, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God saved sinners who cannot do anything to save themselves. That's us. By sending his Son to be a substitute for them. For us. Jesus substitutes his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And when he died on the cross, he died as a substitute also. He substituted himself to bear the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. The curse of sin in the place of sinners so that we could live. So Jesus undid for us what Adam had done giving us a guilty and corrupt nature. Consequently, God considers believers in Jesus Christ to be righteous, since He has substituted His righteousness for ours. And God considers justice satisfied with respect to the relation of... uh, God considers justice satisfied in regard to the sin of believers. For Jesus has borne sin's penalty for us as a substitute on the cross. And so God treated Jesus as we deserved so that He could treat us as Jesus, the innocent one, deserved. But what about sin's power? In bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit makes us born again, to use Jesus' words, in John chapter 3. In that chapter, we read that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. So God gives us a new birth so that we can see and understand and believe in what Jesus did for us. Sin's power is broken. We read in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So Jesus saves us from sin's penalty and breaks sin's power at our conversion. And he will see the work through, releasing us more and more from sin's grip on us. In progressive sanctification, as we talked about last week. Making us more and more holy until He completes the work that He has begun on that last day. In other words, Jesus works as a king over us. Setting up His kingdom inside of us. Subduing our sinful hearts and minds and bringing them into subjection to His will. And He will do this in all of the people whom God planned to save. Each and every one he will bring into subjection to himself. He will establish his kingdom in the hearts of his people. But not only in the hearts of his people. Jesus will prevail over the evil that is outside of us too. The curse that is upon this earth even will one day be undone and creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, Romans 8.21 tells us. And so God's redeemed people Under Christ's rule, we'll live in a new heavens and a new earth under Christ's rule. We were made new by God's grace in Christ Jesus, and even the earth itself will be made new by God's grace in Christ Jesus. And so sin and everything that comes with it, death, disease, disharmony, conflict, pain, suffering, anxiety, relational tension, misunderstanding... Lies, false accusation, abuse, embarrassment, shame, guilt, etc. Sin and everything that comes with it. Sin and everything that comes with it will be banished from the new world. Ushered in by Christ Jesus. Those who stubbornly resist the gospel call will not live in this kingdom. But will be cast out into hell. But for those of us who belong to Christ, according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.30 This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom from heaven. The kingdom where heaven's rule and reign is manifest. The kingdom which has begun now, as Christ has begun to put all things under His feet, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us and the kingdom which will be brought to consummation at the return of our Lord Jesus when the last enemy will be destroyed, death, and all things shall be under His feet. This is the kingdom of heaven. Let's read our text one more time before we continue. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, all that he had and bought it. Now we adequately understand the stories and the concept of the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean for us? It means that the treasure is held out to us in the preaching of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Having uh, this treasure before us is a wonderful opportunity. It's like finding a treasure hidden in a field. It's like finding a pearl of great price. Going into a flea market and looking through the things and finding this thing worth more than your whole Life savings, worth more than your house and your car and and everything combined. And the price tag on it is like $4. You can get it. It's right here. It's right in front of you. The preaching of the gospel holds out to us a treasure, a wonderful treasure. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He died once, He suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that He might bring us to God. All of these wonderful gospel truths, by grace you are saved, even as we looked at last week, through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This gift of God is held out to all mankind. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. What this means for us first and foremost. Is that there is a treasure held out to each and every one of us this morning. That is worth more than anything and everything else that we have combined. If we can just have Jesus. If we can just become heirs of this kingdom. If we can enter this kingdom by faith. And, and if, if the promise can just be ours that I read from 2 Peter 3.13. That there is a new heavens and a new earth coming in which righteousness dwells. If that can just be ours, if we can be waiting for that by faith, if we can be uh, experiencing a measure of this kingdom here and now and longing for its consummation, that would be worth more than anything and everything else combined. This is the first and most obvious application. Jesus and His kingdom are worth giving up anything and everything for. In John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, that I alluded to at the start of this service, Pilgrim begins reading a book, and he learns about this celestial city, this heavenly city, and he learns that the city in which he currently lives, called the city of destruction, is destined to be, guess what, destroyed. And he realizes that he can set out for this celestial city and that he uh, can be welcomed into this celestial city and spend forever there and he sets out he sets out but later in the book uh, a woman named charity is talking to him and she says did you not have a family he says yes i have a wife and four children and charity says well why did you not bring them with you and christian wept Christian wept and said, I would have brought them. I would have brought them. I I did everything I could to bring them. But they wouldn't come. But what you see is that Christian set out anyhow. We have to come to this place where we are ready to give up everything. To be like this man who sold everything that he had to buy the field. This man who was ready to get rid of the, his, the entirety of his pearl collection to take hold of this pearl of great price. What will it cost us to follow Christ? What will it cost us to follow Christ? What does it mean to take hold of the kingdom of heaven? Of what value is it? We need to understand that Jesus and His kingdom are worth giving up anything and everything for. God and His Grace, God in His benevolence doesn't always ask us to leave our family behind. God has been gracious to many in saving a husband or saving a wife, saving children and bringing the whole family along this journey to the celestial city together. God has been gracious uh, not to always call every one of His followers in all cases to leave their career, to leave their house, to leave their family, uh, friends to leave their country, but many times it's not a rarity. Many times we have to give up significant things to follow Christ. Many times the call of Christ urges us, urges us to significant and and drastic uh, uh, choices to leave behind, as it were, earthly things. Now, this doesn't mean just as a point of clarification that a man needs to move out of his house from his unbelieving family and physically separate himself from them to follow Christ. No, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. But the Bible teaches, um, as the words of the old hymn say, "Though Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me. Still I will follow. Whether it means leaving a uh, family in that sense. In certain places of the world, converting to Christ means being run, out of your, uh, being run out of your home. Though you would be content to live with your unbelieving family, they may not be content to live with you. To be run out of your village. In many places in the world, this is a, a, a live issue in a very literal sense. Sometimes it means literal death for people. Sometimes it means realizing that you're in a career that you can't continue to be in when you come to Christ and you need to make a a drastic life change. Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and deny himself and follow me. There are There is a cost to following Christ. Just as, in a sense, um, uh, there was a cost for the men in this parable that they had to give up everything that they had. They had to sell all their possessions to buy this field. There's a cost in that sense that true conversion, really coming to Christ, isn't like, I'll add Jesus to my life. But real conversion Real conversion is like If it costs me everything If everything changes If none go with me Still I will follow If they kill me Still I will follow That's why we sang this morning A mighty fortress is our God Let goods and kindred go This mortal life also The body they may kill God's truth abideth still His kingdom His kingdom Is forever. Because his kingdom is forever. We can let goods and kindred go. So there's a cost in that sense. But we have to understand. That he who gives up everything. To follow Christ. Loses nothing. That the overall value. Of what we get. When we get Christ. Dwarfs in comparison. Anything that we give up. There was a. Missionary to Ecuador a number of years ago named um, Jim Elliot. And when Jim was a young man, he wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When we get the relative value of all these things, If we can only have Jesus, that will be enough. And more than enough, as the psalmist said, which we read earlier in our service, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. It's not like like just the wisest thing to do, like let your iPhone drop in the lake when you're drowning so that you can just get your life, but when you get out, you're still sad that you lost your iPhone. It's not just the wisest thing to do in the sense of let these things go in a, in a ship that's going down. It's actually when we let go of everything and take hold of Christ, we have an insurpassable treasure. And Christ Jesus himself satisfies our souls as with fat and rich food, as the psalmist said in chapter 63. And so really, he who he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The exchange here isn't even worth being compared to. Christ is everything. His kingdom is everything. If we can just have Christ Jesus, if we can just enter into His kingdom and enjoy a taste of it here and now and await its consummation and have the hope of being in that kingdom that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells for eternity. It would be worth anything and everything put together. That's the first application. So if you are not a believer. If you've never been converted like that. Maybe you've prayed a sinner's prayer before but you never thought of the Christian life in those terms. Maybe you've thought, you thought, you walked in this morning thinking you were a Christian. And yet, when I'm speaking about the worth of Christ in His kingdom... You're like, well, I never heard about that before. I never experienced anything like that. You haven't tasted true Christianity. Christ and His kingdom is worth giving up anything and everything for. So if you have not ever come into this kingdom, oh, come in by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest your soul on Him. Ask for pardon for your sin. Ask for cleansing from your sin. Ask Him to fit you for His kingdom. To make you the kind of citizen that you ought to be in His kingdom. And ask that He would grant you to live in His kingdom with Him forever. And He says in John chapter 6, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You may not have come in here looking for a treasure this morning. But like this man in a field, you stumbled upon it. For sure. For sure. Or maybe you did come in here looking for a treasure this morning. You had some inkling that you're going to find something worthwhile in church here this morning. Well, you did. This gospel of Christ and His kingdom is an incomparable treasure, worth more than anything and everything else combined. So that ought to be our first and most primary application, our first and most primary response. But for those of us who have already trusted in Christ Jesus we're already in the kingdom. Other than a fresh reminder of this treasure that we have, what, is the, what ought to be the response? Deeper consecration. The Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines consecration as to devote irrevocably to the worship of God. The worth of Christ and His kingdom are insurpassable. We can't possibly find anything more worthy of our devotion. And so we ought to consecrate ourselves to God's worship. We need to trust in Christ for forgiveness of sin. Trust in Christ for ongoing deliverance of its power by His Word and Spirit. And trust in Christ for the fulfillment of our hope. Living with Him in His kingdom for eternity. And each day we must live with our King. The Lord Jesus Christ. Together with His Father and His Spirit as our object of worship. Our treasure. Our overarching love our passion every day. Every day we ought to, as it were, afresh, go and sell everything that we have for this treasure. Every day we got to do that mental math and remember that Christ and his kingdom are worth more than anything and everything else. Lest we begin uh, to keep wrong numbers and figures in our math book of our hearts lest we begin to assign to other things too great a value and to the kingdom of Christ too little value. We've got to do this mental math every day. Christ and His kingdom are of insurpassable value and live with our triune God at the center of our hearts, on the throne of our hearts, and bow afresh each day in adoration and worship and awe before this great King. And again, over and over, remind our hearts just how blessed we are be in this kingdom and then we ought to live as if we're in this kingdom and as if this kingdom is i was just reading in daniel this morning as if this kingdom is the boulder that will come down and smash all the other boulders represent or uh, all the other uh, kingdoms of this earth that statue that nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream which represented four kingdoms of the earth there's a boulder that comes that Rolls down and smashes all of those other kingdoms. This is the kingdom of God. Revelation 11.15 says that at the last trumpet. All of the kingdoms of the earth. Shall become the kingdom of our Lord. And of his Christ. This is the boulder rolling. And no other kingdom can stand in its way. We need to remember this afresh. And live like that each day. That this kingdom is eternal. His kingdom as we sang earlier today. Is forever. It is an everlasting kingdom. We need to live as citizens of that kingdom day by day. We need to be single-minded then in seeking God's glory. We need to push our hobbies to the periphery of our lives. We need to push our uh, careers to the periphery of our hearts. We need even to let our family and friends give way to Christ in the center of our hearts. We must seek above all God and His glory and His kingdom. Day by day. This is consecration. To devote irrevocably to the worship of God. Commenting on Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Which says, I beseech you brothers in view of the mercies of God. Devote uh, your, yourselves, your bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice to Him. Al Baker comments on that verse and says that this command is in the aorist tense meaning that it is once and for all never to be repeated like a, com- like a couple who gets married once. They continually look back to that day of commitment to each other. It defines their relationship going forward and so it is with Jesus. Total surrender of everything to Him once and for all at the time of conversion. This is the norm for the believer. This is not merely something for the super spiritual. Our lives ought to be marked by a consecration of the highest order. And so... Even as I was just saying, we need to grow in consecration. There's a sense in which, as believers, we've already been consecrated to the Lord. So what we're doing is working that out. As in the analogy He gives, we make a commitment to our spouse at our wedding day. And we are committed to our spouse. But we need to learn to live out that commitment. So it is with consecration. That we, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. We sold everything we had, remember, to get this treasure to get this pearl, right? But we need to live that out and work that out day by day. Alexander McLaren, who was a preacher in the late 1800s and early 1900s, said that all of the world's pleasures are like stars in the sky. They are compelling in their own way, but Christ is like the sun. To have Christ is to have more light and warmth than all of the stars in the sky put together. Why choose one earthly pleasure? Like a star in the sky. Or why choose all the earthly pleasures. Like all the stars in the sky. Above the sun. Which has more light and more warmth. Than all of them together. Why choose to tie yourself to something that will not last. Rather than to tie yourself to the eternal savior. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. What are you going to do about the darkness of your sin and guilt. What are you going to do about the darkness of death and hell? All the stars of your night sky will not drive it away. You need Jesus. 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 You need the life and the warmth that come from Him. So, again, if you're not yet in Christ, if you've never rested your soul upon Christ, if you've never entered His kingdom, oh, come today, now. Go and sell everything that you have, as it were, and take hold of this treasure. Give up everything. Count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Uh, But if you're a believer, you've been already consecrated to Christ Jesus. When you truly trusted in Jesus, when you uh, uh, truly were converted and reoriented your faith to Him, you were consecrated to Him. Work out that consecration day by day in uh, your life. Uh, And remember that This consecration ought to be joyful. Remember our parable. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. So again, this is not like, come on guys, it's the only wise thing to do. Right? Really. You're going to go to hell. If you want to escape hell, you better do this. I mean, that's true, but it's actually joyful. It's actually so rich, it's so wonderful to know Christ and to be in his kingdom. So when we see the work, it's a joy to us to take hold of Christ Jesus. Even if it costs us everything else, there's a joy that runs deeper, a joy that runs underneath all of the costs. The whole toll is nothing to pay when we know Christ. Uh, Jim Elliott, I quoted him earlier, was a missionary to Ecuador uh, who said it is he is no fool to give who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you realize he was martyred at the age of 29? He was killed by a spear? Many people don't know this. While carrying a gun, he never tried to use. You see? Think about it. It was his joy. It was his delight. Not to preserve his life. His biggest thing wasn't even going home. his family his biggest thing what he was all about what gripped his heart what drove him to Ecuador and what drove him to keep that gun holstered, was this conviction that Christ is all Christ's glory above all Christ's kingdom above all if only more people can see and take hold of and enjoy And savor the sweetness of Christ. It is worth giving up literally everything for. In his joy he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. C.T. Studd said, If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Christ be God and died for you, then that changes everything. If this is not true, then we're all wasting our time here this morning. If Christ be not God and did not die for us, then all of this is a big waste of time. Let's be honest. But if Christ be God and died for sinners like us. If Christ be God, let's hit it home a little bit harder. If Christ be God and died for you, and you haven't yet exchanged All the treasures of your heart for Christ. Then you're not just wasting your morning. You're wasting your life. You see. What are you living for? What is your highest goal? What are your biggest dreams? What is your greatest treasure? Remember the story I told you at the beginning. About the Gaither vocal band singing. I'd rather have Jesus. Than all the world affords today. Would you rather have Jesus? than all the world affords today. Again, if not, now is the time. Come, I would be happy to talk with you afterward. I know any of the members of this church would be happy to talk with you afterward about this treasure hidden in the field, this pearl of great price. We'd love to talk to you about Christ and the gospel. But if you have trusted, if you are a believer in Christ, if this kingdom is already yours, then rejoice afresh. You have a treasure worth more than anything and everything else in the world. And the worth of Christ is unsurpassable.